Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. But I just think it's understanding and that we're so used to, like, you can't lose three games in the Premier League. We're Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. You know, you can. It happens. Like, big, lots of teams lose games in a row. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. They're playing all right. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane. I keep saying, because I like it, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. Now, joining me, your host, Danny Kelly, are The Athletic's Charlie Eccleshare, and Tim Spears. Morning, everyone. On today's episode, we'll assess Spurs' 2-1 defeat to Aston Villa, which makes it, in case you've lost count, three defeats in a row. And we'll ask her how do Spurs overcome this slump. And we'll also be paying tribute to the late Terry Venables after his sad passing. Um, a very important figure in Spurs' history, and I'd argue a very, very important person in the, uh, the history of European football. We'll get onto that a little later. Spurs lost 2-1 at home to Aston Villa. Um, I'll get your general views on the game. Only one place to start, either positively or negatively, and we'll get onto that as well. That lineup, I think, I think it's the first time in Premier League history, Tim, um, that a team has lined up without a recognised centre half and without a recognised defensive um, midfielder. It was certainly um, a a an avant garde selection. Avant-garde is one way of putting it. I thought it was insane, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the word for it, yeah. It sort of, I guess it sort of relied on an all-encompassing, overwhelming, you know, completely overwhelmed Villa with like runners, with overlaps, with overloads and blow them away, basically. And and to be fair, Spurs should have scored twice in the first five minutes. And if they'd done that, then maybe Villa wouldn't have come back and, you know, be hailing Postacoglu as a genius again. Um, I mean, it was so ballsy. But you, you could see problems with it from the outset because, yeah, there were no central defenders. So you could see that set pieces were going to be an issue, which, of course, is what happened. Um, but what I would say is that what he selected the team to do worked in theory. You know, in that in that first half, Spurs were all-encompassing and overwhelming and created a lot of chances and sh- should have been out of sight, really, and played some incredible football, which when you consider they've got sort of nine players out, most of whom would be in this first 11, is pretty impressive. It was just the, the execution of the plan that he was going for just didn't quite happen. Um, and they were pretty unlucky on that front because they had their best best expected goals of the season. They scored three offside goals. You know, if Ben Davis scores his header from three yards out, um, if Martinez doesn't make that great double save, then it works. It was just the execution of the plan wasn't quite there. And considering they were playing so many sort of reserve players in that eleven, I think you can sort of um, you can you can you can give them an excuse for that one. But I thought, uh, considering the problems they've got in terms of injuries, suspensions, I thought it was a really good good performance. And they were just they didn't quite get the look on the day. Do you feel the same way, Charlie? I do really, and I think most people I've spoken to feel the same as well. I mean, it's become you know unfashionable to to make excuses. You know, injuries are part of football. Of course they are. Spurs have got a lot. They've also got two players suspended and they don't have a huge squad. We knew that. And, you know, so no, so no one's saying that this is 
you know unfair or that this there's no way to mitigate against this. Of course there is. You have a bigger, better squad, but they had one transfer window to try and improve the squad and we can argue as we probably did at the time whether they did enough in that one transfer window but it's hard to completely overhaul a squad in one window and they brought in seven players um so i just think yesterday given uh the hand they were dealt i think they i think played it pretty well i think as tim says you know they they created so many chances in that first half they were brilliant i said at the time like they needed to they needed to go ahead just before they did score but because it, it did feel like a boxing match where they were taking some huge punches they and and you know a few were landing but they couldn't you know villa was sort of just about standing up and i felt from that half the effort they put in i said i was like there's they can't sustain this press the press was so aggressive so high they needed to go into half time ahead and preferably by a couple and they created more than enough chances to do that uh and look on another maybe if they played dyer maybe if they played hoybier they might have escaped with a draw or maybe even a win but I don't know. I, I, I just feel we've kind of been there before and people weren't happy with that. Um, I get that there's this view that, you know, oh, Postacoglu shouldn't be untouchable. Of course, you like everyone's entitled to say be more pragmatic or whatever. But I actually just think on the evidence of the game, I think the selections were fine because all you can really ask, you know, ideally you win the game, but really what you want to do is create a lot of chances, create the better chances, and you trust if you do that, You'll win games. They didn't. And, you know, there's an element to which it's coming back around. I think in the first 10 games, all the kind of close games went their way. And then they've had a couple that haven't. Um, but I, I didn't have them as it played out. I didn't. I, I wasn't left watching being like, oh, I wish they played Hoybier or I wish they played Dyer. I mean, yeah, maybe they wouldn't have conceded that set piece goal. But I think broadly they did okay. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to address a couple of the bigger issues that come out beyond the game now, if I may, because you know I couldn't disagree with most of what you said there. Um, they made a lot of chances, though, of course, if um, and, and shots at goal are my measure of how teams are doing. So they did well. Not everybody scores with every chance they get, you know, and perhaps it's it maybe a flaw in the way they're set up that uh, we're having so many goals disallowed for offside. And maybe the players will learn to hold their run for half a second, quarter of a second, whatever it takes. I, 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 that is Villa's specialty as well. They're the Europe's leaders for yeah. you know, catching their opponents offside. But yeah. Seville were geniuses at it uh, under the same manager not so very long ago. Um, I, I want to address what you were t- saying. That, you know, people Already Spurs fans are f- falling into two camps now where you absolutely have to trust the process and believe in the manager 100% and are not allowed to dissent from that view. Um, and we saw on, on Twitter particularly, um, James questioned, our own James Moore here on, on the beautiful lane, questioned the, the lineup. I must, I'll be absolutely honest, of course I did too. When I saw that 11, I thought, is that going to win very many Premier League games? I doubt it. The standard is so high. You can't have a flawed team unless all, of the, all everything goes your way. And on the day it didn't. And I think Spurs were unlucky. And I'll come on to where the, where the bad luck came from in, in just a second. But I really wanted to address not just you and uh, t- Tim and yourself, Charlie, but those people who are now getting on their hind legs whenever anybody, including myself, says, oh, I, ha- I wonder where we could have been a bit more careful there. Uh, the word pragmatic has already been weaponized, so I have to avoid it. Um, it's, it's code for you don't believe in and you're a, you're a stinking traitor. Um, I, I think we have to be very, very careful with all this. 
I want Ange Postecoglou to succeed. He seems like a good bloke. He's got a good coaching record. He started well. I want it to go well. I still have to reserve the right to say that isn't correct what he's doing there and to say it in public. Otherwise, where are we going? In public life now, we've got ourselves way beyond football. The politics in the UK and here in Ireland, you know, we've got ourselves in a place now where you have to believe the process. And belief takes precedent over experience and reason and the evidence of your own eyes. Feelings are more important than things that you know and are measurable. Um, and the, 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 what that leads to, has led to is a world where people's minds, and I understand it, the world is complicated, it's very difficult at the moment. So a simple belief in something is very, very attractive. But it isn't the whole story. Life is not black and white. There are gray areas and there is nuance. And the, uh, the ultimate the expression of this is that then anyone who doesn't believe in you, in your beliefs, your feelings and the process is somehow your enemy. It's just not true. Yeah, it's polarization. I mean, that's and, and especially on social media, we see that again and again. Yeah, I, I, no, I think it's fine to to have reservations. I I just feel personally in this instance, it's interesting actually because he, I think his team section was informed by the Wolves game because the Wolves game he was really upset with the performance Postecoglou, and I think in that game maybe he did do a bit more of the pragmatism, whatever word you want to use. You know, he 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 played Hoybier as one of the eights. He played Dyer as the centre back. Uh, and he was really upset with the performance. And I think most Spurs fans were as well. I don't think anyone really felt they deserved to win that game. And even the loss wasn't much of an injustice. So I think that informed the selection. And he was really happy with the performance yesterday. And I think most Spurs fans were as well. And it is, you know, so much of all this does come, is a legacy of the Conte-Mourinho eras, which were massively polarising as well. Um you know, because it became a massive ideological battle. I mean, I'm I'm carrying my campaign medals from the ideological battle. I don't want it to have. I don't want to have to go to war again over something. I want us to have uh, reasoned, sensible discussions about whether we, you know they could have done something different. Listen, Charlie. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, you're both old enough to know know to know this piece of this clip I'm going to play now. Um, but the, the selection, which went on to be unlucky not to win. The selection reminded me, because it's never been done before, I checked with um, the statsman of another organisation. Nobody's ever gone onto the pitch before without a centre-back or a defensive midfielder. Um, and it reminded me a little bit, um, when, I, when, I'd got, when I'd stopped rolling my eyes, um, of that scene in Blackadder where Captain Redbeard Rum, um, uh, they're hiring him, uh, Blackadder is hiring Captain Redbeard Rum to sail a ship around the world in theory. And they ask him why he doesn't have a crew. Um, uh, he just has the ship and himself. And this is what he replies. Opinion is divided on the subject. <laughs> yes. All the other captains say it is. I say it isn't. Oh, God, mad as a Oh, the common maritime practice is to have at least somebody to hold in front of the centre-backs and have some centre-backs in the team. Um, I'm not getting on my hand legs about it too much, but I want to all give a bit of space to people. Tim, the, the, the game to me turned, at least in its, in its momentum, on the foul by Cash on Benton Kerr. I mean, yeah, it, it, it was a nasty challenge. I, I think because, because it was Benton Kerr, because he went off injured, there's been a massive overreaction, I've got to say. But it was, it was 
it wasn't a nice one, and he obviously got taken off at half time. Otherwise, he was he was a sort of a walking red card. But it was a nasty one, and it did quell Spurs' momentum up until that point. It was a crazy first half an hour. Of we we have we have seen flashes of this this season, but this was in the extreme. That it felt like everybody was just chasing the ball. It was sort of like a park game, like both teams with these crazy off offside high lines that they were playing as well, and they were both just chasing the ball around like nutters. Um, and I do think, just to pick up on Charlie's point earlier, that the selection and the approach was a direct result of what we've seen, not just at Wolves, but in the last three games. So if, if you look at if you look at their expected goals from the last three matches, they were their three lowest of the season so far. So that was 0.7 v Wolves, 0.89 v Chelsea, and 1.12 v Palace. And in typical sort of Postacoglu sort of sod it fashion, he's gone completely the opposite direction. He said, right, we need to start creating a lot more chances again. And he's selected no centre-halves and no defence midfielders. So he's gone completely the other way. And and I do know what you're kind of saying, Danny, about how um, criticising him is is sort of seen as the, the, not the thing to do. But I think it's completely fair enough to kind of point out that in the three games they've lost, they've taken the lead in every match. And there's got to be a certain sense of pragmatism to hold on to that lead. It is 10 years, a decade, two-thirds of a generation since any team in the Premier League has taken the lead in three successive games and lost. So if you're looking for patterns, there's something for him and his coaching staff to work on there. Um, because we all know that getting the first goal in a Premier League game, and I jumped out of my chair when um, Lo Celso's shot went in. I was so excited because the first goal is so important. It's not, it's not working at the moment in, in that way for Spurs. And that could be a coincidence or it could be a pattern. I do think it's okay to say that, the, in my opinion, there's a slight touch of naivety on his part and there's a slight touch of him still learning about the Premier League. And yes, you're right, Danny, what you're saying earlier, how difficult it is and how hard it is to win matches. And I think there will have to come a time when he reigns it in slightly. But do you think there's, there is there is a halfway in all of this, I think, which is to... Like, we're so used and told that we kind of have to you know, draw big conclusions and find big meaning. Like, it's not possible to have three defeats and not and then not have to be an element of despair and soul-searching and criticism. I do think it's fair enough to, and, and this is more fact-based, to say, well, look at the teams, excluding City, but the three teams above uh, Spurs have got three managers. Emery's been there for less time, but they have all gone through this period of trust the process whatever phrase you want to use but you know you clot barteta certainly there were some lows there were some madcap antics i think it's fair to say yeah we've lost three games and that's really disappointing but i do have faith that we're moving in the right direction uh i still found yesterday's game enjoyable and i do believe in postacoglu that once this becomes more his squad once uh, he doesn't have an injury and, and suspension crisis. And so I'm not going to get too upset about losing these games. Like, isn't that kind of okay? For the listeners, I will say Charlie disappeared there, possibly there with the postman arrived for a few seconds and came back into that conversation. We weren't actually getting too upset about the three defeats. I was just pointing out there was some pattern in them. No, no, I know. But, I, I, but I'm just linking back to, to the original discussion, which was to say it, it's surely fine to be upset about the defeats and to have some issues with Postacoglu. But I think it's also fine to acknowledge that, yeah, some people will have issues with Postacoglu, but losing three games in a row doesn't have to be a big crisis when there are so clearly mitigating circumstances. Like he is never, he's never going to be in a position where the squad is so not his. 
It's only going to become more his. And I'd venture that he's rarely also going to have so many key players out. And if he does, it will be more his squad. He'll have more of his players to bring in. He's playing a lot of players that aren't his. There are such There's such clear context and mitigating circumstances that I think is why some people might think that's an easy ride, in inverted commas. But I just think it's understanding and that we're so used to like, you can't lose three games in the Premier League. We're Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. You know, you can. It happens. Like big, t- lots of teams lose games in a row. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. They're playing all right. The point I, w- I was getting to is Tim was again pressing on a bruise that the the uh, the cultists may. Um, I don't know what. See, even that is negative. Who who are who are these cultists? I've I've not check James's timeline after he dared to question the the selection yesterday um, uh, on on Twitter. Um, the, the, but the point I, w- I was going to make is that. You're pressing on something here, Tim, that I think needs to be, again, given some air. And that is Postacoglu is just t- – and this is – to you know, I'm, I'm defending him here um, – is, is a dozen games, a bit more, into his Premier League experience. And with the best will in the world, the preparation in Australia, in Japan, in Scotland, um, for a, a league as profoundly DNA competitive as the, as the Premier League um, – it is a huge leap for him as well. Um, and he's a bright guy. Presumably he's learning super fast about it. But there is, there is, I mean, unless I've missed, unless I'm missing something or I've got some dinosaur view of it, every single result has to be clawed out of the earth, which is as hard as stone. Um, and there is no room for the slightest error because teams are raptors. They will just pounce on it. Um, and it's hard. I think it's hard for all managers who come into the Premier League. The understanding you get no leeway, not from us, the fans, but from the opposition coaches and the 25 international players they have at their disposal. It's a real, real tough learning place. Um, and of course, the, the circumstances you say, Charlie, are beyond ridiculous. Um, the, well, that's the, the, it. The, well, that's what that's what I would say, Danny. That in in 2023, it's not okay to just say Spurs have got their two excellent centre-halves out, you know, one of the best central defensive partnerships in the league, just gone. It's not okay to just say their entire midfield has been wiped out and each of them individually, those five players have been so integral to what Spurs have done this season. It's not okay to just say that and put a full stop and then move on and we'll turn up again at Man City next week. Like, and we're, we're part of the problem here, you know, in this sort of 24-7 football discourse. We, the, it's not just okay to say they've got more than half their team out Let's dust ourselves down, forget about it, and move on. But really, you know, look at uh, Man City recently when one player, Rodri, was out, and they lost three matches. Man City lost three matches, and that was a direct result of Rodri and then the tactical issues that came with that. And that was fine, I thought. And then back he comes, and they start winning again. And when Spurs get their players back, Van der Ven and Madison in particular, they'll start winning again. Um, but until, until then, do you know what I mean? It's, no, I compl- it's such an important point. And, and Michael Cox wrote a really good piece about this uh, last season. And it was something I've thought, I'd thought of for quite a while. That Exactly that, that the, the kind of, the, there's so much noise. that, And this is the reason as well that we're so up and down. Because when your team's doing well, you bar and we all do it's great like this is what we do you know we bask in victories and we make us believe that we could we could do it we're we're amazing and then a few losses and it's like we're 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 terrible and and i i do agree i i I just think like 
yeah, as I was saying before, I think they have lost three games. It's disappointing, but it doesn't have to, you know, be all doom and gloom. And also, like, what's interesting is their points tally at this point is still, like, pretty decent. And and I, I also think there's an element to which in the, la- the last three games have gone against them, whereas in the first 10, every tight game did go their way. And, and like you can put that down to the underlying numbers you know we, we always for, for people who care about such things there was always a sense that maybe they were slightly over, overperforming maybe there's just an element of luck there and that's why actually I do think given everything is you know to be missing all their midfield and both their center backs you know it, it wasn't it wasn't one of those performances where you're like oh they could have nicked it it was one where they they just should have won fairly comfortably if they taken even just like a normal amount of their chances um but, and I also think the fact they're playing City next obviously <laughs> isn't helpful because it's terrifying to go to City without half your team. It's terrifying to go to City at the best of times. Though, you know, uh, season before last under Conte, they'd lost three games in a row. I went to the Etihad and won. So there is a precedent at least. The City game, we're the best one in the world. All of us make our living, you know, pon- pontificating about about football that looks after itself somewhat, doesn't it? Because it, there's no problem. If you get beaten in a city, then that genuinely is a well, nothing to see here. Let's all move on. Because virtually everyone, until that rather strange game at the weekend um, where Liverpool and City decided not to have a proper football match, um, everyone gets beaten at Manchester City. But let's just talk very briefly, if we can, then about uh, that. That's the wider I- issue. Let's narrow the, the, the focus of the telescope to one or two things that actually happened. Um, you've written about um, Giovanni Lo Celso's um, performance, Charlie, because his uh, first league start since Nuno was here. Um, and I like the fact you're both wearing tribute Nuno beards today. Very good. Suddenly, the idea of being let go to Barcelona in January to help them with their injury problems now seems fanciful. Yeah, I mean, I think along with Kudusevsky and Porro, uh, I thought he was right up there for Spurs. I thought those three really stood out. Yeah, I think with Lo Celso, it just comes down to the fact that we have been here before quite a few times where he's put in a good performance. Um, he had one good run, really, January to March 2020. That that was his only real run of good performances. Otherwise, it's really feeding off scraps. And, and, and it's so frustrating because he's so clearly a good player, but be it injuries, be it the fact he's never fully nailed down one position, be it the fact that Maybe, you know, sometimes he looks a little bit too one-footed. You know, we've seen someone like Madison and how he's just got this incredible 360-degree vision. He could just go both ways and he has such a clear picture. I don't think the Celso is quite at that level, but Spurs need him so badly right now. So, yeah, I mean, if this crisis continues, certainly to January, then the idea of letting anyone go would feel um, would feel mad. But, yeah, I, th- I think he, he showed a lot of promise. It's just... Can he do that again next week? Can he do it the week after? Can he actually string a run of games together? And then I think then we might feel differently about him compared to how we felt before. What about the other um, making his first full start of the season, the Beatle on the on the left wing there, Tim? What did you make of his performance? Considering how little football he's had, uh, he was okay. I was very surprised to see him start, I've got to say, um, more than anybody. Uh, some nice touches, a good bit of movement, but... On the periphery for a lot of it, which I think was to be expected, um, but I think yeah, him and him and Kulisevsky, more than anyone really, sort of reflected the team in that everything was okay until the final decision-making process. Sometimes Kulisevsky had a great game, but it was that final decision, like with Hill, that just let him down at times. Um, and neither of them looked like 
goal scorers, which is a recurring theme and is an issue with Spurs. So I think in the top eight, only Man United have scored fewer. Um, and when you look at that squad, whether they're fully, whether they're all fully fit or not, there's only really Son and Madison who you can expect a certain amount of goals from over the season. I would expect Johnson to get a sh- his fair share, but he's still finding his way, isn't he? He's still finding his way. Um, he still looks quite raw to me. He he plays like a younger man. You know, he's he's actually quite experienced. He's had like three, four, four seasons under his belt, but um, there's a rawness to his game, which needs to be ironed out. I think at the moment, you'd rather have Johnson as a bench player coming on to make an impact, but there's definitely something to work with there. Uh, Brian Hill, I thought he played well, um, but am I, is that my mind, Charlie, saying played well within my expectations of him? Because now... I, I am a, a fat bloke who sits and, and bangs on about football and he's a professional footballer. So it's probably a little bit out of order for me to say he does a lot of things very, very well, except the basics. Um, his first touch is odd for a player at this level. Now, he may say it's part of his dribble. He's taking the ball away from the opponent. His pass, a bit like a, a bit like his much more experienced and, and uh, storied colleague, uh, Son Hun Ming, his pass is... You know, in professional golf, just say if you two are good golfers, let's imagine, and you want to go professional, the first, they, they literally measure it. If every one of your shots from a 300-yard drive to a a, a two-foot a two putt has to be within a 14-degree arc of where you're aiming it, seven degrees either way. Son Hun Ming and, uh, and Brian Hill, they've got up to about 90 degrees. I'm never quite certain where their, their touch for a pass to a colleague, particularly a short pass, is going to go. Um, and maybe they're taking those risks in the last third that we all absolutely desire, require of teams because you're not going to beat teams by doing the predictable thing. I mean, it's, it's hard not to like him because the way he runs, tries to turn the, his opponent, um, all the rest of it. But I thought he was okay. I maintain a background worry that the Premier League, yes, that blinking thing again, may not be the exact theatre for his greatest performances. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I thought a couple... I mean, on, on Hill when he went off... I tweeted that I thought he worked hard, played some decent passes, but also been pushed off the ball a few times and then added like most of his performances ever, basically. I mean, that that, that is kind of a recurring theme with him. Um, I think he's a really interesting player to watch. But yeah, he whether he's physical enough, I do also think he suffers and it really annoys me when this happens that because he is very slight, it kind of always feels like it's open season. You can just foul him because, he, because it's like, oh, he's just weak. Like the penalty is such Scandalous. a good example of that. Yeah, he's elbowed in the head, but you've got to be tougher, son. Look at that haircut. He's asking to be elbowed in the head. <laughs> exactly. It's so ridiculous. If I'm I'm sure if that's on a different player, that gets looked at very differently. Like it's you're kind of just allowed to foul him because he's slight, and I I just think it's so ridiculous. Um so I think he 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 was okay. I, again, I, yeah, I just don't think he massively he did anything that we haven't seen before. Um but yeah, with, with all these players out, he's probably going to be needed as well. And, and, and encouragingly, Kudusevsky I thought was very good in that um, cent- more central midfield role. That was one of the big positives to cut. That more than Hill's performance, I thought, was a, a big positive. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Tim Spears um, and Charlie Eccleshare are here. Off the pitch, Terry Venables died, a former Spurs player and a former Spurs manager, and of course, England manager too. Um, rightly, there was the minutes um, appreciation uh, for Terry Venables, um, and I just uh, it's, it's interesting now because one's legacy becomes through the prism of you know the the England the England team that didn't quite uh, get over the line with the penalty shootout in Euro '96, um, and also he lost the Champions League final in '86 with Barcelona to an unfancied Stoya Bucharest side once again. On penalties, but uh, I'll I'll talk about him as a player in just a second. Tim and and Charlie, you'll have you'll have grown up with the echoes of of Euro '96, if not the actual experience, um, in in your minds. The thing I remember sort of most about him was how he, I mean, the Graham Taylor England team was the first one that I remembered, and and like you know to go from that sort of awful long ball football with a load of like journeymen. Players With all due respect, Carlton Palmer. Well done, Carlton Palmer in midfield. Yeah, <laughs> and um, but but it, you know, oh, okay, Taylor was maybe dealt a slight bad hand with with the pool of players that he had. But what what Venables did was sort of in a in a really short space of time and only in friendly matches building up to Euro '96 was changed the the entire culture of the England team. And you know he did it with style, and he, that 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 was a key principle of his, wasn't it, Danny? He, he wasn't wasn't just about winning football matches. It, it was it was how you do it, and to bring through players like uh, Jamie Redknapp came through at that time, and Steve McManaman, and Teddy Sheringham. Of course, he 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 put so much on Teddy when England had an astonishing uh, wealth of strikers around that time. Players like Andy Cole. Ian Wright, Robbie Fowler, Stan Les Ferdinand, yep. Stan Collymore, and he eschewed all them to play Teddy Sheringham in that very specific role and his partnership with Shearer, which of course, you know, pays so much dividends. Hello, the game against the Netherlands. Woo! Still the best England goal I think I've ever seen that uh, Shearer second, that part, that disguised pass from Sheringham. And one of England's greatest ever performances, I'd say, given all the context of it. Um, I was looking up last night who they, who the FA 
uh, almost appointed when they went for Venables, and I think the other the other two were Jerry Francis and Howard Wilkinson. So if you th- if it was quite a, a bold and brave appointment, I guess from the FA. But yeah, I, I'm I'm too young to remember his Spurs days. But but the England days were great, and the, and they just didn't last long enough for me. And uh, it, that leaves a sour taste. You'll know more about it than me, Danny. But the way that the FA took so long to appoint him because they wanted to be so sure about his business interests and legal issues that were going on at the time. And then 18 months later, that they were suddenly a problem and, and, and they got rid of him. And I'd have loved to have seen what he could have done with that team, you know, going on to, to France 98. And and you you mentioned the two penalty shootouts. Yeah, if, if he'd won the European Cup with Barcelona and won the Euros with England, we, we would remember him in a very different way. But They missed all four of their penalties, Barca, in that shootout. Four out of four, that's... <laughs> uh, Charlie, what are, your, what are your recollections? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I am very much a child of your '96. It was the first major tournament I I watched, and you thought it was always going to be like that football, did you? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it was like it was such a halcyon period. I know that there's now talk of backlashes that, like, you know, the sort of nostalgia about your '96, but it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. Like, it's a brilliant front foot team. What's not to like? The crowds got into it. The country got into it. Fantastic. It was. It just like completely gripped everyone uh, and it was because I basically became obsessed with football just after the 94 World Cup so I had like the kind of maximum weight between getting really into football and there being a major tournament and it was the most magical thing and that England team obviously managed by Venables yeah I mean I, I was at the Spain game as well that the penalty shootout win and I remember you know obviously watching the Ho- the Holland game was such a high point and I I yeah, I do wonder like if there's ever been in a game I've enjoyed so much uh, than that one. That felt just like such a breakthrough, um, especially because we went into that game, England. We'd beaten Scotland. The, obviously, the first game was a draw with Switzerland, and then that Holland game, just everything exploded. And Venables was obviously the centrepiece of that. And I, I would say to anyone that the thing that the defining image for me of him is after the penalty shootout and he goes and comforts Gareth Southgate, there's pictures, there's also video of it and it's just incredible. And that is, and, and you know, and we did, we looked at it, we did a big piece on kind of Tottenham in the Alan Sugar era a couple, a few years ago. And obviously Venables was so central to that, his dispute with Sugar and he left the club, but the fans and the players all loved Venables, absolutely adored him. Um, and, you know, clearly there, there were issues. There was a reason why Sugar got rid of him and why the High Court upheld that decision. I mean, it went to the High Court. It was a huge controversy. And obviously that then rumbled on to his England days, kind of what Tim was alluding to before. Um, but yeah, clearly just an amazing man, an amazing manager. And let me just go through the, what I think happened with him with coaching. When he was at Crystal Palace, he fell under the spell of a man called Malcolm Allison who had won the title of Manchester City before the money arrived and who had taken Crystal Palace from the third level of English football straight through to the title, uh, sorry, to, to, the, to the top level. Allison had identified that particularly the German teams of the early 70s were changing the way the football was being played. And he, English football was tough, but it wasn't as tough as German football. And he said, we're moving away from technique here to something more like track and field. And Terry Venables took that to heart. But equally, under Dave Sexton, he learned more about the technical qualities of players and how they could be Sheringham, Anderton for two, how they could be best used and harnessed. And his great thing was that he wasn't tied to any one thing. When he went to Barcelona as manager, the first thing he did was to tell everybody at the club that that, that they, they, they didn't work hard enough. 
that they were going to institute something which is now called pressing, which didn't happen in Spain at all. Everyone played load block and then got out of the, got out of their own half after that. The team who won the title in Spain in 1985, Barcelona had won the title for 11 years and by no means the superpower that they are now, um, walked it, walked it. I mean, they may not have won it by millions of points, but everyone knew they were going to win it from the very start because they were doing something so different. Then compare that with what he does with England, where he turns them into a sort of technical team and with the Christmas tree formation. He was just open to ideas. And sometimes this lead got him into trouble, you know, but I love the fact that I was at a football event. Please forgive me. I can't remember what it was at a theatre after he'd been England manager. Um, and he may have been on the stage discussing something with someone else. I can't remember. I was in the audience. And at the end, as you were traipsing out, remember the bookstall at our live event? Terry was selling his board game. Terry was sat there at a table <laughs> selling his board game. He would do whatever it took. Um, and, you know, obviously he was a, a leader in, in, the, in the world, of, along with Brian Clough, of course, uh, of you know, turning management into a kind of game with the media. The papers loved Terry from start to finish. You can hardly find a word written against him because he just sat there at press conferences giving him headlines and quotes that most other managers couldn't have thought up. But Terry knew how to give them headlines and quotes that they would love while not damaging the team. It was a tremendous trick. I mean, it was an amazing trick. Um, and, you know, you can hear from my voice, if you ever had any contact with him, he could hypnotise you into believing and that he, he either A, manage your team brilliantly, or B, sell your board game. And I think that's a, a pretty amazing thing. Now, I remember that board game turning up at a pub I was at years uh-huh. ago, and it, ha- it had its own currency. It was called Banco de Venables, was the uh, currency <laughs> he in would have loved board that. game. Yeah. Last night on Trans Europe Express on Talk Sport, I spoke to Tim Vickery, um, of course, uh, a person whose views on the game I respect. Tim Vickery thinks that Venables was the most important, it may have been the most important English coach um, ever. But, and he, put, he justifies this by saying that the Barcelona team that he managed um, in 84, 85, 86, to that they lost that European Cup final, sets the ground for Cruyff coming in. Um, and Cruyff's wonder team is, is basically built on the foundations of Venables' team and that that team is the one that has most influenced world football ever since. And what happens at Manchester City every fortnight is that they, and you can draw the direct line. There's an amazing picture going around on Twitter. You may have seen it of Terry Venable stood in the sunshine at New Camp with a young child, perhaps 11 or 12 years of age, staring up at him like he's a god. That was Pep Guardiola. And so it goes on, my friends, and so it goes on. So whether you think um, he was just a link in a chain or whether you think he was like Tim does, uh, the most important English manager in the history of the game, there's no doubt that uh, Terry Venables um, was an amazing bloke. And, you know, we all often people get called colourful, we don't have an English word for how he lived his life. I'll be absolutely frank with you. And one day, um, perhaps when the dust has settled uh, on, on the, his departure and we're around a table in a hostelry nursing something golden and cold, I'll tell you the bits and pieces that I know. And I think they're just threads of an amazing tapestry of a life. Um, Spurs will miss him. Um, I think everybody in English football should miss him. Um because there are very few people who go to their grave as popular as Terry Venable, having achieved as much as he did and still leaving behind so much fun. Um, I think we should probably stop it there because um, we've got questions. But third, thank you very much to Sam Lewis, uh, Didcot Spurs and others. Um, time has probably gone against us here, but we'll have another chance on Thursday when we'll probably be doing the preview of the Manchester City game from behind the couch and get more listeners' questions in. We do love your listeners' questions. 
Tim, thank you. Charlie, thank you very, very much. Thank you all for listening. I remind you, as always, that the show has got its own official home on Twitter at VFTL Podcast or email us at VFTL at theathletic.com. The coverage of Spurs, thanks to Tim, Charlie, and others, continues to be fantastic on The Athletic. And you should take advantage of our latest offer, $1.99 a month for 12 months. Simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod subscribe. It's the right thing to do. It is common maritime practice. The Athletic. <laughs>